0: What's up, my friends? I hope that you are all having a great day from wherever it is that you are listening to my voice. Way back in episode number 15, I sat down with a man named Charles Post. He is an ecologist, he is a hunter, and he is a filmmaker. And that man blew my mind. I still get emails to this day from people raving about episode number 15. Charles is probably the best person in the world to go on a hike with because he knows the names of all of the plants and animals and how the species interact. And the curiosity with which he talks about these subjects is truly inspiring. Charles hit me up. He lives out in Montana now and asked if I wanted to do a round two. I said, absolutely. He brought along his buddy, Adam Foss, who's a professional bow hunter and was a great guest as well. And we talked about, you guessed it, Hunting and conservation. If you are new to the idea of ethical hunting as a tactic for conservation, um, I really urge you to check this episode out because um, I think that it's a difficult argument to make that ethical hunting is bad for the environment. And if you are already knowledgeable about this subject, I also urge you to check this, this episode out because it will strengthen your argument. You may have seen um, on the comment boards that a lot of people come down on hunters. Um, Most of these people, I think, are uneducated about the issues. And in today's world, a lot of the issues are won and lost on the comment boards. So if you can come in with a well-placed, well-balanced, articulate statement about hunting and conservation... I think that it's um, it's a worthy cause to speak up about. Adam just came out with a new film uh, that he was a part of with Yeti Coolers. I will link to that under the show notes on my website, kyle.surf slash podcast. You can also head over to my website and donate a few bucks on Patreon. 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever you got. Um, it really helps. And I want to take a moment right now to thank some people who donated to the podcast last week. Thank you to Corey, thank you to Bew, and thank you to Greg for donating on Patreon. It's people like you who keep this show going. Virtual high five, guys. Seriously, I really appreciate it. And all of these people who donate to the podcast get entered into a monthly raffle where my surf sponsors give away gear. So RPM Fitness, Patagonia Provisions, you donate a few bucks and you could have a fitness kit sent to your doorstep. Two people win every single month. If you don't have money to support the podcast, I totally understand. There are a bunch of different ways that you can uh, help out ...that don't involve your wallet. Just talking about the podcast, sharing it with a friend, helps immensely. I don't advertise this show in any way that I pay for, so it's word of mouth and it's people like you talking about it that helps get the word out. We did record this podcast over Skype, which I rarely do. It was also across a few state lines, so I apologize in advance if there are any audio issues. I tried to smooth out any wrinkles, but it's never the same as being in person. As always, if you have feedback on the show, recommendations for new guests, or just want to say hello, stop by my website, kyle.surf, or reach out to me on Instagram. I try and reply to all of my messages. All right. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Charles Post and Adam Foss. Charles, what have you been working on now that you've been out in, out in Montana, man? What a big move for you.
1: Yeah, it's been cool. It's been nice. Um, you know, I was wrapping up, I think last we spoke, I was kind of in the midst of uh, a f- hunting film with Mossy Oak down in, in South Texas, which was cool. And um, since then, we've been working on a, uh, a, a campaign for Filson that's kind of focused on my friend's cattle ranch out in Colorado. So we were there for a while uh, shooting a film and shooting a, a catalog and and then also just polishing up a, a film on eagle migrations. So some friends and I trapped eagles uh, with some scientists up in Nevada and chased them down to New Mexico and telling a story about that. So, yeah, it's been What's good. the premise? Uh, it's this idea that while it takes a uh, village to raise a child, it takes a hemisphere to raise a hawk. So it's this notion that like this fabric of stewardship kind of creates habitat that allows raptors to exist you know and if you have a, a hawk um you know like a goshawk, for example you know they need healthy forests way up in canada but they also need habitat in between you know in the states uh, to kind of tide them over on their migration so it's kind of like one of the world's most epic migrations that flies right through san francisco and a lot of other major cities and you know most people don't look up or really see that that river of raptors so we're trying to tell, tell that story.
0: You were telling me about that um, last time we connected on the podcast. So what's the route that raptors uh, take?
1: Yeah, so there's a few different flyways, and the, the one that I grew up in was called the Pacific Flyway. So that one kind of goes from Alaska down through the center of California and, and the West Coast, and a lot of birds kind of peel off to, like, Mexico and the Gulf, and then others will continue south down to South America. There's also like an intercontinental flyway, which is the one that we were kind of traveling, which kind of cuts through like Utah, Colorado, um, and then down towards Texas, where there's a lot of birds hang out there, and some, some continue south. But yeah, there's like migration paths everywhere. Um, so some some more prolific than others, but. Yeah, it's something, it's like a epic migration that still exists today.
0: And is it that they need open space to uh, basically m- make their way through the, the migration? Is that kind of like one of the, the premises of the film, is that we need to keep open space for the birds?
1: Yeah, totally. And kind of like, also speaking about this notion that if you in the fall or the spring see a bunch of raptors flying high and obviously on the move, I mean, that is a, a, is a direct indication that you have wilderness and healthy landscapes across two hemispheres because those birds need that space. You know, they have their wintering habitat, their summer habitat, their, their, um, nesting habitat, and then everything in between. So, you know, just like the wildebeest of Africa or the elk of Yellowstone, they have these migration corridors and you kind of need, everything from, you know, point A to point C to exist and you have point B in between. So it's, it's not like, um, I don't know, a river otter that has a home range of maybe a few square miles. I mean, these animals have home ranges that span thousands. So the film was really aims to expose that and also celebrate this kind of like patchwork of stewardship that creates the space for them to exist and to continue this epic epic migration.
0: And did you follow them along the migration?
1: Yeah, we followed them for like 900 miles. So we we, we started the migration with them uh, in the Goshoots Mountains, which is like northern Nevada, and then followed them all the way just as, I mean, they're literally overhead, you, you know, we're following the migration line all the way down to southern New Mexico. So just like a snippet of the actual migration, but uh, yeah, it gave us a chance to kind of experience what they experience and see the places that sustain them and support them and Kind of provide them food and shelter along the way damn so. man that's so cool yeah it was cool yeah All the right. film's gonna be badass yeah we're super stoked on it i worked on it with my good buddy Forrest woodward and max lowe and we hopefully i think we're shooting to submit it to Banff uh i think like early august is the submission date so fingers crossed stay tuned <laughs> yeah so
0: and um adam what have you been working on man
2: Well, I actually just recently left a creative digital marketing firm that I worked for for almost six years. Um, So I'm actually out on my own now and, and really exciting uh, time to be picking up projects that are a little bit more, uh, I guess I can get my hands really into and and sort of grab a few of them a year and, and, uh, and dive in rather than sort of churning out bigger, uh, pieces of content or for more clients, uh, kind of drill down to some, some specialized storytelling. And so I do, uh, photography and film primarily. And so I've got, um, two film projects lined up and, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about them or not, but, uh, (laughs) I guess they're, they're in my wheelhouse. They're, uh, documenting and telling the story of two pretty badass, uh, mountain hunts that are happening up in my backyard. And, uh, so we're putting together um like a 35 day expedition and uh we'll do it via backpack and carry way too much heavy camera equipment for way too long so uh actually leaving on uh friday so like i don't know when this will air but july 7th and uh, i'll be back sometime in the middle of august so pretty exciting exciting stuff
0: can you talk about who the the films are for
2: uh yeah uh one of is for sick gear uh a company that I've been a part of as an athlete for quite a while. Um,
1: Adam's a pretty badass hunter. <laughs> you can open the Marshall bow catalog or see some of the Sitka catalogs. And you'll see a smiling little Canadian face in there.
2: <laughs> yeah, sometimes. And, uh,
0: so, is it, so, have, so it's going to be a bow, a bow hunting trip as well as a film project.
2: I will just be behind the camera shooting wildlife and people hunting. Um, I will not be trying to kill anything but uh i'll definitely you know it's kind of funny because as even behind the camera or in front of the camera you're still always hunting and and looking for animals and signs and thinking about where they'll be and you sort of zip your tent open and wonder what the day will bring and and where the sheep will be so it's just as exciting to be up there um you know behind the camera as it is as it is being being the hunter
0: totally well and it also takes a specialized skill set like you, you can't just be any geek off the street with a camera to go document a bow hunting trip. I remember when I was uh, out in Hawaii last year and we were doing a um, a shoot. Uh, I, I may have sent you the link about uh, the impact that Wild Pig are having on coral reefs. And I went out with um, with my buddy Justin Lee. And then as well on the shoot, we also had a producer who wanted to come and a shooter. And Justin was like, so this, he's like, you know, this is kind of like important that we're quiet out here like it's kind of hard to to get a pig with a bow like they don't just hang out you know and uh it was kind of this funny like aha moment for the whole crew like oh yeah we're out in nature now and there's this whole new skill set that we need behind a camera if we're gonna go on a hunting trip
2: it is really interesting to see that aha moment, and it usually happens. Sometimes it happens in a beautiful way, and sometimes it happens with me swearing profusely uh, to the cameraman about them stepping on branches or when the fan kicks in on the camera or something like that. But uh, it, it is quite interesting though, and uh, and some of the best people that create content in the hunting industry actually are really great hunters as well, and and. I think that's sort of an untold story that a lot of the people that I've gotten the chance to work with or meet over the years, um, people might not know that they're actually really badass hunters themselves. So it's uh, it's definitely a skill that they lend well both to each other.
0: Right. What are some of the things that you're thinking about uh, now? Like you bring me into that world. Like if you're out on a shoot, um, what are some some factors that you're you're taking into account? I was chatting with Charles the other day about this kind of idea that, look, if you're going to be a bow hunter, it's such a personal experience um, and you need to get so close to the animals that it it, it really requires this knowledge of the landscape in a way that, that other types of hunting uh, don't really require.
2: It definitely does. I think, um, yeah, gosh, it's, uh, it's sort of a whole different mindset. And I've only bow hunted. I just grew up doing it and I, I never really... I never have rifle hunted. I never plan on doing it in the future. And so I think it's sometimes interesting to see the hunter transition, you know, especially in Montana or other states, you have an archery season for six weeks, you have a week off, then you have a rifle season for six weeks. So it's a great opportunity to take advantage of multiple seasons um, for a lot of hunters. And so they transition back and forth into being a bow hunter and a rifle hunter. And I think that there's there's a big difference to really sort of wrap your mind around what it is to be a bow hunter and, and, uh, and what that's like. And I guess to summarize it, I think it's, it's just about the pace at which you operate in the mountains or the forest, wherever you're hunting and how quickly you're moving through and noticing things and stopping to glass. And, and I think that, um, you know, if you're rifle hunting, it doesn't necessarily quite matter as much. And, and bow hunters tend to be most successful when they're really slowing things down and and being in tune with everything that's around them and the wind changing and and the way that uh you know uh, an ear of a mule deer is flickers above the willows and they catch a catch a glance of it out of the corner of their eye or something right it's it's all those things and so it's hard to describe but i i would say sort of slowing down i guess um is how i would describe it
1: what
0: was have you been uh bow hunting recently
2: so, uh, yeah, so I've hunted, uh, what was the most recent hunt? Um, I was in Patagonia hunting, uh, free range red stag um, in April. So it's nice to be able to take advantage of some Southern Hemisphere seasons. So you got North America, you can only hunt really till December for big game. And then you got to sit on your hands for nine months until the next, uh, season opens up the next fall. So, um, I was down there doing that and, uh, and having a ball giving it a go.
0: What are the um the hunting seasons like down in Patagonia? How do they manage the wildlife down there?
2: Great question. They so obviously it's you know 6 months opposite. So, you know, late March the red stag roar is what it's called when the red stags are in rut it would be very similar to late September here in North America when you know our elk are bugling and and in the rut. And so that's the time of year to go down there and experience the roar, and it it, it really is a, a roar. They, uh, if you look it up on the internet or something, it's it's pretty phenomenal. Um, it doesn't sound like that noise can be coming out of an animal uh, that doesn't have fangs and claws. It's it's pretty incredible. So um, what does it sound when, like? No, it sounds like, <clears throat> I'm doing a terrible job because I don't have my special horn. They have, like, a, the very traditional a, horn, uh, red steak horn. Call him on uh, in.
0: I, I slept with a girl once who sounded like that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hopefully she's <you're> not listening.
1: <laughs> well, one of the cool things hearing Adam talk about this, and, you know, just thinking back when you and I first sat down, was that you and I did that podcast a few months ago, and Adam listened to it, and he and I hadn't linked up yet. And it was funny because I was standing at a friend's ranch in a little town called Three Forks, who he's a photographer, wildlife photographer, loves sheep. Um, And he was telling me, he's like, oh man, well, if you're moving, you know, out here, you should connect to this, this kid, Adam Foss. And uh, my girlfriend at the time was really tight with, you know, him and his, and his lady. And uh, the next morning I wake up and Adam writes me a message that he had listened to our podcast, Kyle, and he sends me a message to my email. And it's this like really nice kind of like feedback essentially on the conversation you and I had, and you know, basically an invitation to grab a beer and hang out. And since then, we've been you know, hanging out as often as we can. And uh, yeah, and then he gave me a bow, a baby about a month ago. I've been traveling a lot, so I haven't had a, a ton of time to shoot it. But it's just funny how that initial conversation we had kind of brought the two of us together. And then, you know, I grew up shooting, hunting with a gun. Uh, I mean, obviously as an ecologist, hunting with binoculars and a pen and paper. And then again, uh, as well, but looking forward to my first season with the bow and hearing Adam talk about kind of that, that intimacy and that cadence and that pace that tends to, uh, lead bow hunters to be successful is something that resonated with me because as an ecologist, you know, somebody who spent nearly 10 years in the woods, studying birds and other, other organisms. I mean, you're really not going to notice what, how an ecosystem's changing or how behavior might influence something that something in the in the landscape you're you're amongst um, you know you, you can't see those things unless you you're slow and mindful and intentional um, in the way that you move and, and kind of observe so
0: well it's a good background that you've had in being very patient to get a photo of you know, a raptor or a deer and and you have that skill set and you've cultivated that for years. so it seems like a um a smooth transition into a, a new discipline like bow hunting
1: yeah absolutely i mean it's so I it, i laugh when i think about it but i had a job for almost three years where i literally woke up every day at sunrise and followed this little bird around by myself for like you know as long as the sun was up you know in the summer that's from, you know, 6 a.m. to 10 at night. And I would literally just sit there and watch this little bird, American Dipper, and and literally record everything it did the whole day. And, you know, I think about hunting and think about what Adam's telling us and what he's told me in conversation. And it seems just like it's that, it's that flicker of the mule deer ear and the willows, or it's that, you know, that understanding of, of behavior in life history and knowing that, the sheep fed here and might be foraging there based on the wind or the sun or the temperature or the water availability or whatever is in season, you know, kind of like a fisherman, you know, like matching the hatch. So it's that like life history, that like intentional, I guess, yeah, like an almost infatuation with life history. Like you're not going to be a good bow hunter or an ecologist unless you really understand that taxa and that landscape. And And it's something that I really admire because... You know, it brings me to con- conservation and stewardship, and you know, people tend to protect things they care about. You know, and to be a bow hunter, by default, you have to care and know a lot about what you're going after.
0: I think that Charles, you come at it from an interesting uh, place because n- no one's going to argue that you know, like you're obviously a very moral person with the way you go about um, your life and with the the work that you've dedicated uh, yourself to and now you are getting interested in hunting, um, which for some people that might seem like a mental schism uh, in their mind. It's like, wait, you care about these animals, but now you're hunting them. How are you morally justifying that?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, just for the record, like I, I grew up hunting and I think in those early years, I was pretty much just a kid who loved to like be on the woods and grew up bird watching and fishing and Kind of was doing what my grandparents and folks, you know, introduced me to, and then as I started really studying ecology as an undergrad at UC Berkeley, and then as a full time biologist and as a graduate student at UC Berkeley, I started seeing the kind of um, the effect that hunting as an economy and as as a as a pressure in society can have, both negative and positive on wildlife, and there's. You know, countless examples of how hunting, especially in North America, has shaped the conservation that we have today. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, big game hunter, Charles Sheldon, big game hunter. I mean, there's countless people who were had hunting as their background, and that was the vehicle that inspired their reverence for the natural world. And today, you know, we have places like the national park system, and a majority of the public lands we have in America were set aside by hunters.
0: Who's Charles Sheldon?
1: Charles Sheldon was a sheep hunter who traveled up to Alaska during the Alaskan gold rush. And he found his way up to the Denali area, which is where doll sheep, uh, a, a really kind of highly adapted sheep to Alpine high elevation tundra landscapes. They're really cool. They're like snow white and they occupy you know, places like Denali and the surrounding Alaska range, and he saw the commercial hunters just slaughtering these sheep who probably don't have much predation pressure. Um, and he was up there to hunt them himself, but saw what was happening and realized, you know, this resource that I admire and revere and enjoy pursuing as a, as a recreational pursuit, um, as, a, as a sportsman, are being uh, jeopardized, and it was something that he was not going to sit by and and let happen. So he petitioned his um, peer, you know, his peers and people in the, in the federal government, and that led to the establishment of Denali National Park. Um, you know, and that that kind of mindset and that intention to take care of and protect what you love is something that I think is 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 uh, seen today through duck stamps and and excise taxes and. Various federal measures and local measures that put dollars spent in the hunting industry right back into conservation, right back into the economies that are like inextricably tied to these, you know, these organisms, be it a duck or a deer. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of I have these like various, I think um, like north stars that kind of guide my approach to hunting. You know, conservation's part of it, um, and then also just like kind of skimming across the surface. You know, there's a lot of animals that exist today that are out of balance because of what we are like collective swing of the axe have done to North America and to the world. I mean, like, wildebeest aren't roaming from Mexico to Canada anymore. You know, there's not mountain lions and California grizzlies and these predators kind of pushing grazers and other species around as they would in a in a natural setting. Like we live in the Anthropocene, you know, it's an epic that is defined by us. Like that is undeniable. So when we talk about hunting and some of the species that you can hunt, you can actually use a bolt or an arrow to fill the place of a California grizzly that is is extinct or, you know, a grizzly bear or a black bear, or a mountain lion, or some of these predators. So like white-tailed deer, there's never been more white-tailed deer in North America on earth. Like it's never happened. There's more white-tailed deer now than there ever have been and there's no predators. So you have basically an overabundance of white-tailed deer in North America. And one of the best things you can do as somebody who's interested in the environment and knowing where your food comes from and eating, you know, if you choose to eat meat, there's really no better way to put meat on the table than going and getting yourself white-tailed deer. And I would challenge anybody listening to this to go on the internet and go on Google Scholar. It's a free um, resource filled with peer-reviewed science papers. And I would argue you'll have a very hard time, if not impossible time, finding a scientific paper that says hunting white-tailed deer is a bad thing to do.
0: And what is the impact that white-tailed deer are having on the natural landscape?
1: Oh gosh, I mean, so many. (laughs) You know, they carry um, diseases that, like, chronic wasting disease. They're a vehicle for. They're a vehicle for some other diseases that are um, being passed on to moose and driving their decline, they're grazers they eat grass, um, and other vegetative material. And they will eat and eat and eat until they're pushed away from that resource. Traditionally, that would have been done by a wolf or some sort of a predator. But when, when, when you're a deer and you have no worry, like you're not going to get killed by an an ant, by a predator, you will just put your head down and just eat. And the best food tends to be around water, So they'll go into a creek, for example, and they've done some really great studies that show the effects of uh, wolves on elk populations in Yellowstone. And if you have elk that don't have predators, they'll just go to the creeks and just hammer the trees and all the vegetation. And that reduces habitat for songbirds and butterflies and uh, takes away the plants that would create shade for the creek, which keeps it cool, which creates good habitat for trout and other aquatic organisms. And then those trees in turn would you know, if they weren't being hammered by deer, they would grow and eventually die and fall into the stream and create habitat for young fish. And, um, you know, it's just like, if you, if you destroy the vegetative environment or overgraze it, just like running cattle on a landscape, you know, everything else will collapse underneath it.
0: The tropic cascades are so fascinating to me as, uh, you can kind of zoom out and look at that 10,000 foot view of various species and habitat and just see how it all fits together man that shit fascinates me yeah
1: <laughs> dude i think like adam and i you know uh would probably agree with you right there and that's something that i'd love to hear adam talk more about is like you know you're shooting a lot of these animals at 15 30 40 yards like you're you're like almost feeling their breath you know and i think that intimacy gives a hunter a chance to be hyper selective the animal there's animals they're taking so If Adam's, you know, obviously he's like a a naturalist conservationist, has this like knowledge. So he can go into a situation and like literally use his knowledge to harvest an animal very, very intentionally as opposed to, you know, shooting something at 150 yards and maybe not having as much of a hand in picking the right one or a smart one. Yeah. So what,
0: what are some of the, um, the factors that you're thinking about if you're, 20 yards away from an animal?
2: Uh, It's sometimes when you're that close, you're wondering if the animal can hear your heart beating, (laughs) Uh, which is, which is always pretty cool. Uh, I think there's a, there's the thing about bow hunting is this sort of a saying that we have that a hundred things have to go right in order for you to kill the animal and it's usually possible to get to 90 and then sometimes you get to 99 but it's very difficult for all those things to line up from the wind other animals uh, the sound that you're making did it stop long enough for you to take a shot did it did did another hunter come over the hill Um, is it too dark is it too bright whatever there's so many different factors and you're sort of on this path when you're in the mountains or the woods you know, trying to find these animals, and this animal is living its life out, and it's pretty remarkable that your pa- you know, your paths have to cross so perfectly uh, in order for you to be able to harvest that animal, and so I think when you're that close, you know, at 20 yards, um, yeah, you're just thinking about, uh, you know, obviously the wind has probably been okay if you got that close, and you're just, you're just really trying to stay calm and wait for the animal to look the other way, and And draw your bow back and rise up slowly and make the shot but uh, every situation is totally different so it's sort of a a difficult question to answer um but uh yeah it's uh that's kind of what we live for to be that close and and in that moment
0: do you uh grow up and kind of cut your teeth as a hunter in canada
2: i did yes i grew up pretty much right on the foothills of the rocky mountains just uh west of calgary between uh yeah between Calgary and Banff if people know where that is and uh there's a lot of great hunting opportunity in Canada a lot of over-the-counter tags um I was fortunate enough to be able to hunt bighorn sheep over the counter every year with my dad and brother and so I started doing backpack hunting uh through my dad's guidance and my brother's uh hard-headedness uh (laughs) since I was you know legally able to hunt at 12 and and before that as well uh just tagging along so pretty awesome opportunities up in canada and and uh it's really special to be able to do it with the people that you really look up to and care about so i think that's another component of hunting that is unlike most activities i think it it does have such a traditional element to it that can be passed on and it's just so relatable for it's just so human to do it and so when you are fortunate enough to pass it on whether it is you know a blood relative or a friend or a goofy looking guy from California who just got his bow and is shooting it with his wrong hand. It's, uh, it's pretty special. So
1: um, I love Adam on FaceTime. Am I doing it right?
2: (laughs) How
0: is, uh, the, the, the hunting system set up in Canada differently than it is in the U S
2: well, the number one factor would just be population to landmass. So there's roughly 10 times as many people in the U S and you know significantly less open spaces for wild animals to live in Rome so there's there's quite a bit more opportunity just from a perspective of of how many animals are there and how many people are hunting them so um it's set up in a similar fashion there's over the counter tags there's draw tags there's there's you know season set up for you know monitored bag limits on on various species but overall there's just a whole lot more opportunity because there isn't that um you know, supply versus demand to hunt. And so I think that when you have iconic species like sheep, you have a lot of people that want to hunt them and a lot of people that will put in their whole life, for example, here in Montana or uh, throughout the Southwest for bighorn sheep and they'll never draw a tag. Like they will never get the chance to go hunt. Um, If you live in Utah, you might get the chance to hunt a premium elk unit every 12 to 15 years. And so...
1: I mean, even a moose. Like I was talking to... um to a friend who just pulled a moose tag, and he's been, he's been hoping to do that for 29 years, you know? It's a long time. And it's not even, like, a, a premium zone. You know, it's kind of in his backyard, so he knows it well, but, and he, I mean, he was pretty much in tears. <laughs> you know, it's a big deal for a lot of people, yeah.
0: So I want to ask uh, both of you your, your opinion on this, because um, I think you, you both have interesting perspectives on this. But there's been a lot of um, media recently about Trump... Uh, wanting to move uh, national land into the hands of states. Um, and I wanted to ask both of you kind of your, your opinion about how land is managed best um, and what you think this is going to be, be doing um, for, for the future. Because I'm just kind of confused about how it all works, and I think that a lot
2: of people are as well.
1: Yeah, I could probably chime in on that first and give it a stab. I mean, Did you say
2: states or provinces?
1: I think you said states. <laughs> <laughs> South of the uh, the Canadian line. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I I would say first off that it's it's an incredibly complex issue, and I think what media tends to do, and they do it does a great job of, is simplifying it and making it seem very like singular and uniform, and you know what I think we as people who are, who are stakeholders, people who care about our public lands and about these natural resources need to keep in mind is that the U.S. Forest Service, for example, their, their tagline is a land of many uses, right? So like a f- the federal uh, lens through which U.S. Forest Service lands is managed is through this idea that it should be logged and grazed and mined, and available for recreation, uh, motorized, on foot, horse. So the national forests in America are already being, you know, like I said, mined, logged, you know, their resources are being used. And I, I bring that up because one of the things that I see commonly in the news when this whole idea of privatization of public lands is brought up is people saying this land will be sold and, and mined or logged or, or used in some way. And, and that's, that's, that's happening. Granted, the federal government is managing it from a top-down perspective. It's not in the hands of a private company, which I personally don't think is the right thing, is the right future for our public lands. I mean, I think it's a public resource. It should stay a public resource. Um, so that's one aspect of the broader conversation. But the other side of the conversation is, or in one of the other sides of the conversation, I think speaks to an experience I had on BLM land, Nevada is mostly public land. It's, it has more public land than any other state in the country, in the United States. And we were down there. Um, I was there with a friend of mine, Ben Masters, doing a story uh, for National Geographic on wild horses. And, you know, you go to a, a landscape like that, where you have a public land in Nevada, which is a very vast and remote, uh, lightly populated state. And it's clear that the BLM does not have the resources to manage those landscapes. They're overgrazed. Some of them, there's a wild horse problem that is prolific and, you know, like well discussed. It's like not something that is underneath the surface. I mean, people are actively trying to figure out how to manage wild horses, which are actually just feral livestock. Cause they went extinct with a saber toothed tiger. But that's another conversation. So in that respect, there are examples, I would argue, of public land that might benefit from local management. Maybe that's maybe that's Nevada's a state managing their rangelands. In that case, um, but I I think those two examples just speak to the complexity of this issue. And when when you know when you see a statement on CNN that talks about the privatization of public lands, like public land in South Carolina is very different than public land in West Texas or Nevada or California. You know, there's different stakeholders, different resources, different pressures, maybe some pressures are development, maybe some are mining, maybe some are grazing. Um, but I think it's just maybe not the best, the best, the best way for us to approach this conversation, I think is on a case by case basis.
0: Yeah. Um, it, it seems like it, because for me, um, with the amount of different issues that I've covered, I've found that One theme that is is true is that usually local management works better because they're able to react um, and and meet the needs of the local community more adequately than a top down approach.
1: Totally, and you have stakeholders. You know, like people give a shit when it's their backyard, and you know, like I have I have a, a, a ranching family I work with really closely called Ranchlands. They manage. Three, over 300,000 acres in the West. And it's literally where they live. Like they know if their spring's running dry or if their topsoils disappearing, it's not because they're good stewards, but you have that investment and you have that intimate knowledge. And not to say every rancher or land manager is like that, but to your point, Kyle, I think you speak to something that, that I found to be true in my travels is that like, if, if people have their their backyard as the landscape that they're fighting for, like they will fight, you know, and they'll give a shit. And some guy who, you know, works in D.C. who's talking about Nevada, like who's maybe spent five minutes in Wendover, Nevada, and like looked out across the range like, yeah, this is the way it is. I mean, he has no freaking clue. You know, (laughs) like people talk about Nevada all the time. And I'm like, have you, I mean, have you spent time in Nevada? Most people would say no, you know. And to your point, I think, we need to give the people who live in these landscapes a voice, you know, give them a chance to to have to, to craft the future of these places that they recreate and hunt and live on and rely on, you know?
2: I was just gonna add that without that access to to public land, I think that you have a very difficult ability, especially in today's day and age with the fact that you can live an entire lifetime of lives by staring at your phone. Um, and be entertained endlessly, and you never necessarily have to go outside and experience these things. I'm not saying that you should. I'm saying that I think that our this generation that's coming up, and and you know we're a part of it, is that without access to public land, there there's a definite chance, and and a very good chance that the reduction to younger people getting involved in the outdoors, in whatever facet that might be, is significantly. Impacted, And I think that once that happens, the ability for anybody to care about those landscapes and the resources um, also diminish with it. So I think because of that, that technology Asia we live in, uh, it's very easy to, to experience things that uh, I might personally like to experience myself and feel the the water of the river and and feel the the wind in my face on top of a mountain but uh you know you can probably watch a pretty cool video that Charles made with his buddies Max and Forrest about experiencing those things on your phone and you don't even have to leave your apartment in uh Santa Barbara <laughs> <laughs> from
0: your experience um having hunted all over where do you see um the lands being managed best
2: well, I think he's going to say Canada for sure. I think <laughs> it's it's challenging because Canada, it, from my experience, it's a different set of challenges um, yeah. that uh, you know that, that that are down in the lower forty-eight as opposed to Canada. And one of them is is population and habitat encroachment that you don't have, especially up north in Northwest Territories or Northern Yukon. I mean, it is so remote, um, and so the real issues. That you know the the glaring issues that uh, that you know might actually risk the landscape are are so sort of l- longer burning and um, you know issues like climate change and you know if um, you know just the way that that could affect all of our northern landscapes which um, you know we obviously don't need to dive into too deeply but those are sort of the longer term issues uh, there and it, so it's managed so well because. Um, you're managing against um issues that just that aren't prevalent up there uh, up there. You know, they they have it very well uh set up so that the populations are are very controlled and also with these sort of iconic um keystone species, they're they're economic drivers of these whole communities and outfitters that have spent multi-generations, you know, setting up um, you know, for example, a doll sheep hunting concession. That is yeah, that is a total uh way of life for these people and and uh the fact that they can charge you know top dollar for a hunt for someone to go and hunt and sustain them and their families allows them to um make sure that their resources is managed and a lot of those guys they'll get you know 40 or 50 permits a year from the government they're allowed to go and harvest and, and they'll actually take quite a few less because um they really want to try to um uh, manage it as best they can and then they're also they're trying to kill um just the top level oldest rams that, uh, are either past their breeding prime or, you know, potentially might not make it through another super harsh winter. And so they are a part of, of their landscape and, and what they're able to do. And I think that that's a connection that really allows, um, you know, pretty remarkable results.
0: Right how you so you're both calling from montana right now uh what's been your experience of the the management and the system that's set up out there
2: um i think lots of public land lots of wilderness and you know you don't have a ton of people as well but i think that uh you definitely have more and more people wanting to come hunt out west in terms of if we're talking specifically about hunting um and fish out west you know i've experienced it it's been you know a few years five or six years spending time in bozeman now and you'll notice even in that short time more people floating the yellowstone on saturday mornings more trucks at the trailhead during elk season and so um i think they do a pretty good job and they do have tons of public land access they raised the prices of non-resident elk tags four years ago i think by a couple hundred bucks so i think it's if it's not the most expensive elk tag in the lower 48 uh for a just a general tag or a draw tag i believe it's the it's one of them but it uh I think it's $900 for a tag um, in Montana. So I think that's sort of kept the casualist out of Montana that isn't going to want to invest the time to go hunt and then also driven up the dollars that are available by selling those tags that, uh, you know, hey, if you want to come experience this, this wild place, then, you know, you can pay 900 bucks to come hunt elk. And, and people are happy to do that, and myself included, very happy to do that because uh, I think it's a value that we all place on the animal and the place and the experience that we get to have. And it's sort of, it's sort of pennies to pay because, uh, it's sort of a, you know, sounds cliche, but it's a priceless opportunity to be able to go do the things that we get to do. Yeah. What, and what happens with that 900 bucks? That's a great question. Um, I think it sort of gets disseminated among, uh, the regional fish and wildlife groups and they, use the funds as best they can, but anything from, um, I know a lot of money gets spent on just population surveys. So they don't have a lot of money for, uh, doing aerial surveys because helicopter and fixed wind, fixed wing airplane fuel is really expensive. So, um, they try to scrape together as much, um, money they can to do surveys. And, you know, if they're doing habitat enhancement and if, you know, I think we just were a part of a controlled burn North of Missoula a few weeks ago that they were doing to, reduce, um, timber encroachment on high alpine. areas. Hmm. How, uh, yeah, how, so. how does
0: that, how does that work?
2: Uh, they basically just go and sort of have a zone that they can safely burn and they try to do it earlier in the spring and, uh, and just torch a bunch of either dead standing mature timber or sort of scrub willow brush. That's continually choking out the high alpine. Um, and so it's, uh, it's kind of cool because I, you know, if you've spent any time in a, area that's been burned, whether that's five, 10 or 20 years previously, it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable to see how that landscape rebounds and species can come in and, and sort of be successionists and, and watch it, uh, sort of reinvigorate life in that ecosystem.
0: It's so funny how, whenever we try and outsmart nature, like, Oh, we don't need to burn forests down anymore. There's, (laughs) there's no need for that. All of a sudden we run into such major issues on so many levels.
1: Well, and I think one of the cool things about fire, you know, I, I just spent a good while working on a on a project uh, with an outdoor brand that profiled the United States Forest Service uh, Wildland Firefighters. So I got to spend some time, like, on the ground with firefighters burning uh, pretty big swaths of, like, Ponderosa Forest in Oregon. And, you know, I while I was in school, studied fire ecology, worked with a fire ecologist for a while. And fire is one of those things that I think like hunting to a certain degree has kind of gotten a bad rap because people don't understand it and they jump to these conclusions that maybe are not fair. And one of the things that I think fire has unfortunately been tagged as is this negative, this negative force in the landscape, something that's destructive, which it can be. And don't get me wrong. I mean, a lot of the fires we're seeing today that are affecting communities and forests are very much human influenced. And when I say that, what I mean is that they are burning at a higher intensity and at a, at a less frequent rate. So fire, when people talk about fire, they talk about it as, um, yeah, return interval and intensity. And what would have happened pre-European contact or kind of pre-European takeover, if you will, um, was you would have had low-intensity fires burning frequently across, across fire-prone landscapes. Um, so like the Pacific Northwest, especially on the east side... Those are are talked about as fire force, fire force that evolved with fire. California very much so. Uh, Montana, Intermountain West would have burned, you know, at a at a pretty frequent return interval. It would have burned patchy and it, with not much intensity because you went not have a lot of fuel. So what's happening now is, you know, we're kind of uh, unfortunately in this, you know, kind of wading out of this era of fire suppression, which was Smokey the Bear, which was just like don't you know put out forest fires, which Obviously, has a there's a, one of the reasons is they want to protect human life and and and, and, and uh, neighborhoods and everything like that, which is very very valuable and I think worthy. But also, a lot of places have been prevent have not been allowed to burn, and now you have these fires that are burning super hot over huge swaths of land, and the fire is burning so hot that it's killing the killing mature trees, killing the soil microbiology and just getting to a point where it's literally out of control like we had fires burning in california last year where the government like we couldn't do anything we just had to kind of make fire breaks and let it burn out because it's just too big too massive too costly too risky to to address so one of the ways to to kind of address this problem these out of control fires is to have uh intentional fires And what those fires do, those intentional fires, those prescribed burns, is they not only create a space for firefighters to fight future fires from, because they have already burned, they'll have less fuel, they also slow down fires. So if you have a huge swath of wilderness that hasn't burned in, say, 100 years, you can burn strategically little patches throughout that swath. And if it was to burn, those little patches of already burnt forest would slow the march of that big fire. And make it easier to to battle but also just kind of take away some of that intensity another thing fires do which is super cool is they create a patchiness in the ecosystem which like adam was talking about when he said succession is that if you have a forest and then you burn these little patches that creates space for new growth for you know fresh growth um, and that creates habitat for a lot of insects and birds that are drawn to those edges Uh, It's a great place for grazers like deer and elk and moose. Um, So fire is like one of the best things we can reintroduce to our landscapes and prescribed burns, not only have that ecological benefit, but Adam was talking about this like encroachment of willow, which is, is, is actually doing quite a number on a lot of the Northern landscapes in, in Alaska and Alberta and, you know, the Canadian provinces, because what you're having is these warmer seasons and, and historically, tree the tree line would have been kind of maintained due to ice and permafrost and cold weather. And now with more wild, mild winters, you're having this like elevational march of woody plants, which is, you know, there's like if you have a if you have a mountaintop, you only have so far for those animals that live in the Alpine to go.
2: Like they literally get cliffed out essentially. Yeah, so, and I think to add to that I've even seen that just in my short lifetime in places that I grew up hunting, and you can see the willows sort of creeping up the creek beds. And uh, and so for an animal like, uh, you know, an iconic species like a bighorn sheep, they're looking through 8x42 binocular vision. And so their defense mechanisms from predators is to be able to see. So they're in open spaces. They don't like being in the timber. They don't like being in willows. Um, if they aren't super, you know, aware of their surroundings, you, you won't find them. They always find them within 100 meters of you know, a 45-degree slope or greater and and in the open because they can use their vision. And so if you look at an animal like that, like Charles is saying, if that, uh, you know, timber and willows are encroaching, it's actually just sort of taking away their habitat. And so um, for species like the bighorn sheep, I think uh, it's it's cool to be a part of organizations that, um, you know, really want to help put and keep those sheep on the mountain. And, uh, and so the Wild Sheep Foundation, which is a Bozeman-based uh, nonprofit, was out there doing a, a controlled burn and providing the funding for it.
0: That's so interesting. Does, uh, so what are the
2: major predators of bighorn sheep? I would say mountain lion primarily and wolves in some areas. It just depends on the area. But, uh, and I think every now and then depending on how far North you are, um, you might have a grizzly bear go after one. And I've heard of a friend who's an outfitter in the Yukon and he lives in his area all year round and flies it in the winter on skis. And uh, he's seen wolverines go after uh, doll sheep. So they back them out so onto cool. a cliff and and uh, he's seen them go after their jugular and take them off cliffs. And <laughs> no way. Some pretty remarkable... <laughs> yeah.
1: And <laughs> yeah. wolverines are crazy because they have a home range of like 500 square miles. So yeah. you have these like roving males that are chasing down like the nimblest mountain athletes around, you know, and that's crazy.
2: That's of course, you know, in the dead of winter when, um, the animals fitness are the absolute lowest, the snow is the, the deepest and, and they're able to take advantage of them at that point. But, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think the thing that kills sheep, at least in the North is winter and late spring. So you have areas that, uh, either a huge snowfall, comes in late in the spring that uh, they're sort of on their last legs and ready to go back to their summer um, habitat and uh, and a big snowfall either blocks the pass that they're trying to go through or, or keeps them on a small little island of forage and um, if those sheep don't have enough fat reserves they're not going to make it so you sort of see you know nature keeping itself in flux I think at least from my experience um, speaking specifically about sheep is through sort of these three to five to seven year patterns of harsh winters and late springs that kind of regulate the, the, uh, uh, population back to a baseline.
0: Charles, you told me the other day that that grizzly bears just got delisted. Is that correct?
2: That is correct.
0: Let's deal with that.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, it's definitely a, a topic that's been in the news and I think is, uh, very much on people's radars here in the Intermountain West. Um, you know, we are situated next to Yellowstone, which is what people consider a, a source population for a lot of those megafauna, like the gray wolves and the grizzlies. Um, yeah, so it's, I'm not sure if I have an answer for your question as you know, which is probably getting at like, should they be delisted and should they be hunted? But one of the things that I do feel strongly about is that hunting if done with an ecologically guided hand like for example is being employed in the southwest with desert bighorn sheep which aren't as prolific as the as the bighorn sheep that we have up here in montana it's a it's a pretty small fragmented uh collection of populations down there but in places like that where you might sell two tags in texas say for over a 100 grand that undeniably allows a significant pulse of resources we put back into that ecosystem. And what you call those types of species, grizzly bear included are umbrella species. So what you do is if you protect that species, and when I say protect, I mean hunting in this case, if you create an economy around those species, an economy of of interest, an economy with dollars and cents, um, you by default are protecting all the plants and animals and waterways that support that umbrella species. So if grizzly bear were to be regulated and managed like every other megafauna in North America, like Adam was telling me earlier, grizzly bear are the only uh, megafauna that are not managed in North America because they've been listed. If you were to do that, you would create an economy around the grizzly bear and all the species that share its habitat. So I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily have an opinion on whether or not they should be delisted because I think that's Reflu- that's influenced by population data that would, that would theoretically say this species has rebounded to the point at which it no longer needs federal protection that is guided by the Endangered Species Act. So so that's kind of like the background of it. But, you know, one of the things that makes where we live in Southwestern Montana unique is that we're so close to Yellowstone. So what you have there is you have, and it's the same case with wolves and elk is you have basically like a nursery ground where it's this, it's one of the, you know, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is the largest intact swath of temperate forest that we have left. So it's this like very wild, relatively pristine, you know, swath of wilderness that that is a breeding ground for your elk and your sheep and your goats and your, and your wolves and uh, your grizzly bear. And what happens when that island of refugia exceeds its its kind of uh carrying capacity like the number of individuals the landscape can support you have individuals oftentimes younger males that kind of like say you know screw this i'm going to go find my own place and my own place to raise a family so you have these animals these grizzly and these wolves and and, and elk you know kind of uh flooding out of the park into places like the landscapes that adam uh, hunts and I will hunt and where we live. So you do have an opportunity to potentially hunt an animal, elk, potentially bear, that come from a very healthy, robust population and come into a landscape that's highly managed uh, and, and hopefully managed with an ecologically guided hand, which I, which I think is very possible because if you look at the other animals that are hunted in Montana, they're done It's done well, I would say, and the North American model of of hunting is the best model that we have in the world. I mean, South South Africa copies us, and it's this idea that you know you can have a highly valued tag for a key animal, and that that economy, that that supply and demand, and that flow of resources is what goes back into the system. Uh, And Anakin can probably speak more specifically about like the hunting in general, but you know, in terms of the grizzly bear being delisted, you know, hopefully whatever happens next is something that's influenced by, by some really good data. And it's not a, hopefully a political move, and It's hopefully just a fact that scientists believe the grizzly bear is at a place where it doesn't need to be listed as endangered.
2: Yeah. It's quite an interesting time to, to see it all unfold. And I think that, um, bears are interesting and I, and I can't sit here and tell you that I'm a bear expert by any means or an expert in anything, I suppose. But, uh, but bears are interesting in that, like Charles is describing that you'll have mature or immature, uh, boars sort of being on, um, you know, an expansion mission to continue garnering new territory and new territory because a boar is unlike, uh, you know, a male, uh, Sheep or elk or something that cohabitates with other males. They live in bachelor groups. They use each other to survive. And then when it comes to the rut, they fight for um, you know mating supremacy. And then they they get back together and hang out through the winter and through the rest of summer. So bears actually are very territorial, and they're gonna fight and kill other boars for competition. They're gonna kill cubs for food and so that the sow will go back into heat, regardless of its his own cubs. It doesn't matter. Um, and he'll kill the sow for competition or for food it, it doesn't quite matter and so if you look at um, the way that hunting has tracked with um, you know an area like Kodiak island in Alaska it's sort of an interesting you know study area that uh, trophy hunting brown bear trophy hunting uh, has been going on for 50 or 60 years and it's so selective for you know large old boars because they have you know the, the biggest hides and the And the biggest skulls and they're the hardest animal to kill and that's why we go and hunt you know try to outsmart the smartest animal that we can find and so I think if you look at that that population has been on the rise for the last 50 years because it's been hunted and it's been hunted very selectively and you can see the impact that it's had and so that population is doing better than it ever was and of course the economic drivers that come with that are pretty substantial, and you have people that come from all over the world to hunt, and they spend their money getting there and staying there, and you can see how hunting um, and fishing, you know, is is two big ways that that place um, say sustained from an economic perspective, and that's only gonna place a value on those animals to be there for a really long time. To clarify, is
0: an older male bear called a boar? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, sorry
2: confusing. about that. Yeah, a yeah, boar is a male, a sow is a female.
0: Yeah, I, I but also with pigs, too. I was um, got, uh, goddamn ignorant Californians. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and one of the things, too, that, if I'm not mistaken, Adam, when people harvest a bear, the government, the federal you know, agency, is able to look at the, the teeth and age the animal, and that helps um, kind of bolster our collective knowledge on these animals' um, population dynamics
2: so well well, it is really interesting that as a hunter you're sort of doing citizen science out there and yeah you send in the tooth for a age analysis or you know for sheep you go and check them in and you get what's called a plug which is a silver uh basically a stud that drills into the back of the horn to let you know that this is a legally harvested sheep and you can count the age of the sheep very easily by the rings of growth on his horns and so it's you are taking a place in in history and in conservation when you um, take this animal that, you know, a lot of data derives from, you know, what decisions might be made in the future and and how the population's doing. And so it's pretty cool that, uh, you know, I always tell the story that, um, you know, when we're doing a sheep relocation or a, you know, on-the-ground foot survey, the people that show up to volunteer are hunters. They are, there's, there's no non-hunters coming to these you know um volunteer events that are you know going to help protect and promote the species that they love it's it's primarily driven by by hunters and i think that um to be a part of that it, as a hunter it's it's really cool because you are sort of taking that like i spoke about earlier that you know step in the history books and you can pass that tradition down and you know that you know hopefully the animal that you love to chase and, and just view and be a part of and photograph and about what they're doing right now and pick up their sheds and, and, uh, and look on Google earth to where they might be and read books about them and, um, listen to podcasts about them is, uh, is something that's pretty cool.
1: And where, I mean, Adam's wearing a hat right now with a sheep on it, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, you, be, you literally become one of the things that, that it just fascinates me, intrigues me and, and makes me excited about people like Adam and friends who hunt and really care is that they become like ambassadors of this taxa of the species, you know, and and where else do you find that? Maybe with bird watching, with songbirds, people are like very passionate about songbirds or fishermen are very passionate about trout or permit or some other kind of game species. But you literally will see people driving down the road and you can see, you know, a permit sticker, which is a fish on the back of their car or an elk head, you know, like the sticker of an elk. And you have people who almost define themselves by these animals they pursue, but also in turn conserve because... You know, I have people all the time who ask me like, oh, how do you hunt and fish and you're an ecologist and you care? And, you know, and one of the things that I respond by saying is, well, you know, I care and I show that I care because I'm contributing hundreds of dollars a year back to conservation, which is the most important thing you can do is even if you don't hunt, like donate money to fish and game and donate money to groups like the Wild Sheep Foundation, you know, because that's creating, if, you, if you're just like watching wildlife, I mean, that's one of the best things you can do. And, and, I think a lot of people forget that millions and millions and millions of dollars are poured back into these animals and these landscapes in directly from fishermen and hunters or, you know, fishers and hunters. Um, you know, there's no mountain biking organization out there that like requires you pay to use the trails that, you know, maybe you're a mountain biker and you love elk you know, unless you're donating money, like specifically to elk habitat, you're not really giving back except maybe through like vocal support of that trail, or maybe you're, you know, you work on the trail and restore it. But I mean, hunters like by default are pouring money back into these landscapes, same with fishermen. Um, so it's something that's, that's undeniable. You know, it's huge.
0: Good vibes and Instagram posts don't always save a species on their own. (laughs)
1: Especially now, you need money to save things. Unfortunately, because the things that people don't care about are going extinct. You know, right now the background extinction rate on Earth is a hundred to a thousand times greater than it would have been, than it would be naturally. So I mean, literally the things that aren't going extinct are things we're consciously saying we can't let this go extinct. And the things that are going extinct are the obscure like frogs and bird species and algae and random taxa that just nobody unfortunately nobody except maybe one nerdy phd student in like iowa cares about and he's not enough to save them sadly you know but that's that's literally what's happening right now so not that elk are gonna go extinct but it, like we said if you protect elk you protect everything else that lives in a forest that sustains elk
0: right well i liked what you were talking about also as it as uh these these predators being umbrella species because not only are they they impacting the animals but they're they're impacting um the grazing patterns as well is that correct
1: totally yeah i mean one of the coolest studies that i've you know one of like the landmark studies that shows that was a study that was done in yellowstone that sh- that looked at the effects of wolf reintroductions in the park and there's a great youtube video i forget what it's called but if you just go on youtube and type in wolf reintroduction yellowstone you'll see this what what they found is you bring wolves into a system, and it doesn't even have to be direct predation. There's this this, uh, field of ecology that looks at the landscape of fear. So if you're an animal and you're afraid of something, you will behave differently because the threat of predation is in the air, it's there. So like you can be an elk that's never seen a wolf, but if you know that they're around and maybe that's because you're picking up cues from an older individual in the herd, you will not sit at a Creek with your head down hammering young willows. You're going to be eating, looking up, eating, looking up, and you're going to be moving constantly from resource to resource, water, good forage, whatever it is, you know, day beds or or evening beds. And when you put that landscape of fear back into an ecosystem, it takes elk out of rivers and riparian areas, which are the vegetative community, the vegetative, you know, organisms that live around water. Um, and it lets those grow back. And then all of a sudden the stream slows down cause there's roots and, and woody debris slowing it down. And then the songbirds return cause there's fresh uh, plants that have, that support caterpillars and insects they feed on. And then those leaves cool the stream and they fall into the river and they feed invertebrates that feed trout, you know and then the woody debris falls in when a tree falls and that creates habitat for young fish. So when I mean, they've looked very closely at the effects of reintroducing predators back into a system and it's again undeniable that it has immense benefits uh, that affects everything from algae to osprey and eagles you know in, in between and the other cool thing about predators is that oftentimes like adam said they are they defend their territories with a lot of you know vigor and they also have big territories so like a wolverine has a has a A home range you know maybe 500 square miles so if you have an animal like a wolverine or a grizzly that has a huge home range and you then in turn have that animal as something that's managed think about all the land that is then managed you know like if you have a viable population of grizzly to hunt you're gonna have the home range times the number of individuals which is you know I mean do the math like you're talking about hundreds of thousands of square miles so it actually means a lot to have an animal that is managed because especially a predator, because by default you have all the landscape that comes with it. Cause you know, those animals need a lot of land to, to be healthy enough to hunt and manage. Um, and there's places that I think do a really poor job of predator management, Texas, for example, where there's no season and there's no regulations on hunting mountain lions. And one of my good friends is working on a, an amazing film right now that, sh- that, that dives into that topic but i mean literally if you live in texas and you see a mountain lion, you can kill it like you know regardless any any time any anywhere you know any individual age sex whatever um so i think that's a really great example of how not to do things um but there are great examples of of other predators and and animals that are managed really well
0: i fucking love you charles post
1: Dude, I love you for the, the chance to be a freaking nerd.
0: <laughs> I, I so appreciate uh, what a, a sober perspective you bring to hunting and nature. It's so easy to anthrop- anthropomorphize animals and dig our heels into a trench without adequate information, and I I truly appreciate the, the perspective that you bring.
1: Oh, well, I'd say... Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. And, you know, people like Adam, you know, have have taught me so much. You know, I feel like most of the the junk that's in my brain is just me regurgitating what my friends tell me, you know, or what I read. So, you know.
2: I was going to ask Kyle if you think that Charles makes you feel smarter or dumber because I don't know which one, which way I feel. (laughs) He lends knowledge so you feel smarter, but then also your, the inadequacies of your intelligence become uh, rapidly apparent. (laughs)
0: Well, I, I feel smart because I have Charles in my contact list. Like, as a fit. There you go. It's like I, I surround <laughs> myself with uh, with great people and stand on the shoulders of others and call myself tall. But then whenever <laughs> I'm trying to regurgitate it's this, like, sermon that he delivers, I always hiccup at a certain point. <laughs>
1: My, my friend Ben Masters you. calls it preaching the gospel conservation. <laughs>
0: That's good.
1: Which is, I think we're all pretty good at that.
0: All right. Um, right on, guys. Well, let's wrap up there. I would love to do this any other time again. And I uh, also want to come meet you out in Montana at some point.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we'll have Adam take us around and teach us not how to break sticks and we're sneaking up on animals. And Charles can teach us how to bow hunt. <laughs> Yeah, check, check in with us this fall. We'll see how things are going. I will. Right. Where
0: can folks get in touch with you?
1: Uh, you can find me at charlespost.com or uh, Instagram's at charles underscore post.
2: My Instagram's fossman8, the number eight. And uh, I like to be featured in Charles's various exploits throughout <laughs> the day. Um, and uh, yeah, you can probably see me on the brands that I work with Uh, from Sika Gear to Yeti Coolers or Matthew's Archery Uh, any of those guys are usually talking about something that I'm involved in one way or the other but um, yeah man I appreciate, uh, appreciate the time I actually learned a few things myself so it's been fun
0: All right, that's our show if you like this one be sure to go back to number 15 when I first sat down with Charles get in touch with Charles get in touch with Adam it's super helpful if you like this kind of stuff for the guests to hear from you If you like the show in general, please take two minutes, give it a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you are listening from. Coming up soon, we have Lonely Planet writer, Playboy writer, New York Times writer, all-around fascinating dude, Adam Skolnick. And until then, I'm going to leave you with a song called Me and Baby Brother by Light the Band. I will link to this song underneath the show notes of this episode on my website, kyle.surf. All right, everyone. Have a great day, and I'll see you soon. One, two, one, two, three, four.
2: Yes.